Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie G.G., and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you like what you hear. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, resume, proposal, or any kind of writing, look us up on FurlaGroundCommunications.com for more information. Amicieta Clark escaped the Civil War in Liberia when she was 12. She adapted to life in New York City and excelled, getting a full scholarship to Cornell University. But she was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis, a rare autoimmune disease during her last year of law school, causing her to experience blurred and double vision and strength and balance problems. After overcoming her disease by changing her diet and lifestyle, Amicieta founded Clean Body Living, a holistic health coaching practice that helps women with autoimmune diseases and other chronic illnesses shift their mindset to own the power in their healing journey. I posted photos and further details about Liberia and Amicieta's journey on my website. You can find them at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com backslash finding dash fertile dash ground dash podcast. Now let's meet Avicieta. Hello, Avicieta. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Marie. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You're welcome. Where are you calling us from today? Right now, I am in Maryland outside of Washington, D.C., You were born in Liberia. What was it like growing up there? It was great. So I was born in Liberia and I was there until I was about three. And then we actually moved to London. My father had a job there. He worked for Chase. And so I was in London for a while. Uh, My brother was actually born on my birthday in London. Yeah, he he crashed that third birthday. My husband has the same situation with his brother and sister. <laughs> oh, really? Very unusual. Yeah. And I remember hearing that his brother was not very happy because it spoiled his birthday party. And, you know. Yeah, I, I didn't like it at first. But <laughs> now we celebrate our birthdays together all nice. the time. Nice. But I went back to Liberia when I was about six, almost six. And it was a great childhood. It was a little bit difficult sort of integrating back to Liberia with my British accent. Uh-huh. But I went to one school there where I got teased a lot. And then my mom ended up transferring me to another school where I had cousins. But it was great. We had a lot of friends, a lot of community and didn't really, you know, worry about hanging out with, you know, other families and strangers. It's just such a tight knit community in Liberia. We say there's like half a degree of separation, you know, went to the beach a lot, had family, grandparents, aunts, cousins, just right down the street within a couple of miles. So definitely spent a lot of uh, family time together, a lot of outdoors time, a lot of eating, you know, fresh fruits. We had an avocado tree, call it butter pear in Liberia. We had a butter pear tree. Oh, that's a wonderful name. (laughs) It is buttery. It is. It is buttery. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So I had that. We had a cinnamon tree. We had oh. a soursop tree, which is a, a tropical white fruit that's sort of sweet, like pineapples. Doesn't totally taste like that. But, you know, just like a lot of fresh food and great childhood. How many languages did you speak as a child? So that's interesting. One, 
English. Well, just English. Yeah, they they have a number of different uh, languages. Last time I, ah. the last statistic I have is is twenty eight oh. uh, different languages. But with the history of Liberia, there were freed slaves who went back to Liberia to quote unquote established Liberia, even though there were people there. But some of my lineage is from the freed slaves. I definitely have lineage that's Vi. And my my name Siata is is a Vi name, but unfortunately, no one spoke Vi except my grandfather, and that wasn't passed along. So I just grew up speaking English. It would definitely be great to learn Vi at some point in my life. Well, I was reading about the founding of Liberia. I didn't know that it was founded by freed slaves. Yeah, in the 1820s, the American Colonization Society, who sent uh, some some freed slaves back to Liberia and Sierra Leone. So actually, what's interesting is that my grandfather on my mom's side, his father, so my great grandfather, went to Liberia when he was five from oh Little gosh. Rock, Arkansas. So I always say, like, I have roots from like all over the African diaspora. My dad, half Haitian and half Nigerian, and then my mom's side, and then my grandmother has her grandmother was from Barbados. So it's you know I'm just like a melting pot. You are. You're a walking melting pot. <laughs> so what made your family leave Liberia? I know that Liberia had a lot of unrest and, and war in the 80s. Is that when that happened? Yeah, 1989. There, there was a coup in 1980. We we were there, but you know, I was young then. I was two going on three. That's when we left to go to England. Mm-hmm. But things were relatively stable in the 80s as I was growing up. But in 19. 19- 89, there was an insurgence of rebels. And just to take a step back, there was a coup in 1980 where the president was killed. And then we had a a dictator throughout the 80s. So in 1989, December 24th, 1989, there was an insurgent by rebels to overtake the then president. And we thought that we could stay in Liberia. The rebels were coming from the northern part of the country. I used to live in New York, so I always do an analogy saying, let's say the rebels were coming from the Canadian border of New York State mm-hmm. and Monrovia, the capital, is New York City. It was, you know, hundreds of miles away. And we thought that as they got closer, the president would flee. And so we were in Liberia for a number of months from December through June. In May, our school closed. I went to an American school that followed the the U.S. system and closing in June, but they closed early in May. We had a number of friends because we went to the American school. We had, you know, American friends who all left and came here, but we stayed. We thought that we could just stay in our house. My mom had bought all this non-perishable food, sardines and mackerel and rice, and my dad had also taught my brother and me how to climb the fence with a light book bag in case we had to flee. But on June 13th, six months later, my great uncle called my grandmother and told us that he had received some information that things were going to get very bad. Um, he used to you know, work at the State Department and he knew something that he just passed along to the family and he told us to leave that day. And at that point, the international airport was closed and there was only a smaller airport with cargo planes. My brother and I shared a suitcase. My mom had one suitcase and my dad, who is a lawyer and he was 
coming to the United States for his master's in law. So he stayed. He was planning on coming regardless. But we we left the next day in a cargo plane. So no regular seats. We were all strapped to the side of the plane with our luggage in the middle. We went to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, where we had cousins. We stayed there for a month. We, we thought we would just be gone for a week or so, but for my brother and mom, it's been 30 years. Oh, wow. So have you got back yourself? I have. I went back in 2008. I've been 18 and a half years. And then I went back in 2014. And what was that like to go back? It was really exciting. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been back, like I said, for 18 and a half years. I remember counting down the days to go back. The war lasted for 14 years. So after the war was you know, over, I was excited to you know, be back in my birthplace. But at the same time, I could see the destruction of the, the ice cream place that we used to go to growing up that you could see that it was bombed and you know, all the structures were destroyed. But it was still good to just be, be home. And at the time, Liberia elected its first woman president, right? Yeah, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Mm. She was elected, I believe, in 2005. And and yeah, actually, I met her. I had a friend who I knew her and I was able to even take a picture with her. And she said, you know, she was proud of a Liberian lawyer. And it, it was good to meet her and definitely nice. inspiration to see, you know, the first woman president in Africa. Yeah, definitely. So then you moved to, I'm not going to try to say it in French, the Ivory Coast, and Canary Islands and Guinea in different places then. Is that correct? Yeah, we were in Cote d'Ivoire for a while, just trying to figure out what was going on with the war. My grandmother had a place in the Canary Islands that we went to. My mom said that she was going to start cleaning and doing whatever she could to support her children. But she worked at UNDP in Liberia and her boss contacted her and told her that he was setting up a mission for Liberia in Guinea. And then we went there. And so then you arrived in New York City. And what was that like to try to adjust after everything that you'd gone through that you suddenly landed in New York City? Right. We went to Queens because my dad had family there. But it was it was a tough transition going to school. One, just with the size, there were so many people who were biased and making all these stereotypical comments about Africa and you know where we were coming from, whether we wore clothes and had you know, pet lions and oh, really? Oh my gosh, and stuff like that. So I really didn't have a lot of friends, even throughout high school. Actually, there were a few other immigrants that I made friends with. But another thing that I encountered was sort of discrimination from the school officials, where they didn't think I was a all A student. But ah. when I brought my report card from Guinea. They said, you know, an A in Africa is not the same as an A oh, my gosh. in America. So what we decided was that I would be in the regular classes for one semester. And then if I did well, they would put me in honors for a quarter than I was put in honors. But that's just something that stuck with me that an A in Africa is different from an A. And I was going to an international school. You know, even if I were going to a Ghanaian school, a Liberian school, they shouldn't be making that comment to the educational system. But I think that in a lot of cases, schools around the world are much tougher than they are here. Right. 
an A in Africa probably isn't the same as an A here. I had to work harder to get it. Exactly. So you showed them all because then you got a full scholarship to Cornell. Right. I love that part. It's awesome. So you went to Cornell and then you ended up going to law school. And so right now you work as a lawyer for the government. I do international law. You mentioned that when you were in law school, you were diagnosed with myasthenia gravis. Am I saying that correctly? Myasthenia. So tell our listeners about what that is. It's a rare autoimmune disease that causes muscle weakness throughout the body. And an autoimmune disease is one in which the immune system improperly attacks the body. And instead of just attacking viruses and outside invaders, it attacks your own body. So it's autoimmune. In myasthenia, it attacks the muscle nerve connection. So our nerves tell our muscles to do certain things, raise your hands, open your eyes, move your legs, chew, swallow, and there's a blockage there. So there is weakness in your eyes, all of those areas I just mentioned. And in some cases, myasthenia can be fatal as it affects the lung muscles. For me, my first instance of any symptoms was when I was driving back to law school at 70 miles an hour on the highway in upstate New York, and I got blurred vision. I began seeing instead of two lanes, I saw four lanes that crossed each other. I was thinking to myself that I had been studying for my administrative law final, but I couldn't be that tired. So I ended up slowing down, of course, going to the next exit and I went to a diner and washed my face. And my vision after a while, it returned. And I was thinking to myself, what the heck was that? And got back on the road and it happened again. And again, long story short, I had to pull on to the side of the road call 911. Thereafter, I was diagnosed with myasthenia. But it was difficult to do a lot of things. At that point, it was my last semester of law school. So I had to talk to the dean about getting accommodations. At that point, I didn't even know I had myasthenia. I just began to experience blurred vision frequently. And then even the bar exam. At that point, I knew I had myasthenia, but I was getting the blurred vision. So I I requested accommodations for the bar exam as well. But I already had a job lined up when I first developed symptoms at a big law firm in New York. And I really didn't know what it meant to work at a big law firm in New York. Really? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I heard people in law school saying, you know, my friend was working until 3 a.m. And I said, oh, man, that must have just been like one day. <laughs> it must be just that one firm, right? <laughs> yeah. Or just one, one firm. Like, it can't be like that oh my God. Time. But the combination of battling myasthenia and taking drugs that suppress my immune system because an autoimmune disease is the immune system attacking the body. The treatment for it is to suppress the immune system so it doesn't attack your body. But then, of course, you get everything else. And I really feel bad for uh, people I know who have autoimmune diseases now are on immune suppressants. And, you know, then we have COVID going on. Yeah. Yeah, I was taking those things, working the 80 to 100 hour weeks. And I just saw that because I was taking the medication, I could just keep pushing myself like that. I can't imagine how you did that. You know, Marie, I can't, I don't (laughs) know how I did it either. Like I'm looking out, I'm, you know, I'm in my forties now, but I was in my twenties, but still, I don't know how I did it either. 
And I worked at firms for eight years, working those hours. Wow. It wasn't years. All the time I practiced corporate law. So I worked on mergers and acquisitions and private equity. So I would work these crazy hours for a period of months, but then get a reprieve. But it was on high intensity for periods of time. I actually remember in 2007, I billed two 300 hour months in November and December. And billable hours, that doesn't count. Eating lunch in the bathroom, doing administrative uh-huh. work, it's actual billable hours. I did two 300-hour months. And amazingly, I did not get blurred vision during that time. But then afterwards, in January, I got blurred vision. And I went to my doctor and I said, you know, I didn't get blurred vision in November and December. He said, you know, the stress is affecting you afterwards. Mm. But he also said, if I build two 300-hour months, I would get blurred vision. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even without it. I would too. Yeah, yeah. I know. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. When you had blurred vision, how did you work? I mean, it was crazy with other activity, but with work, it was difficult. But the thing is with blurred vision, your eyes aren't aligning properly. So one, if you cover one eye, you can see clearly out of the other. I would cover my eyes, use an eye patch. And I even remember a senior associate explaining something to me and I was squinting, trying to close one eye and look at the document with the other eye so I could see what he was pointing to. But one thing to note, I didn't tell anybody at work because I didn't want to be treated differently. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to seem like I could work as hard and, you know, as anyone else. That was a challenge at work as well. You know, as long as I was in my office, I covered my eye. Wow. Right. Right. It's just, you know, sometimes even people now, you know, into health and wellness and trying to help other people, you know, that they know my story now. And they're, they're saying, wow, you were doing all of that <laughs> suffering without autoimmune disease. That's amazing. So then what happened next? So I took these immune suppressant drugs actually for four years. And then after four years, my doctor said that he didn't want me to continue on them because of side effects, which I still don't know what they are but I don't want to look them up. Yeah, right. So Because I can't do anything about it now, right? Exactly. So I took steroids after that for two years. And then I had surgery. There's a surgery for myasthenia where if they remove your thymus gland, which is an organ in the chest that plays a role in immunity, especially in childhood, removing that helps myasthenics. I had to stop taking the steroid because it interferes with bleeding and healing. Then it got worse. I mean, my blurred vision. And then I ended up having problems with my hand. Like I couldn't type, like I couldn't move my fingers. I remember talking to my doctor and saying, okay, what's going on here? And he told me, oh, things are going to get worse before they get better. And I also started having difficulties walking. And at the time, I didn't know it was myasthenia. And none of my doctors even recognized that it was myasthenia. They were taking me for tests to check for blood clots and all this stuff. But where I'm convinced it was myasthenia, I had weakness in my leg where I couldn't put my foot on the ground properly. I had to drag my foot. The doctor wanted to put me back on the medication, the steroid. And at that point, 
point, I had begun to do research and I knew about the long-term side effects of the steroids, which include diabetes, osteoporosis, and glaucoma. And I mentioned it to him and he told me that I didn't have to worry about them because I was young. I was 31 and I was on a low dose. So I went back on the steroid and my vision cleared up. I regained strength in my hands and my legs. But then just four months later, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis <sighs> at 32. Oh my gosh. But for me, that was a real turning point. I was so upset, not just because I had osteoporosis, but because I had mentioned it to my doctor. Yes. Oh my yeah, I, I mentioned it to him. Yes. You know, and he didn't say anything. I mean, now, you know, I would say he could have told me to take some vitamin D. Uh-huh. Calcium, do weight-bearing exercises. Yeah. Of course, who knows? Maybe I still would have gotten osteoporosis, but let's be proactive. Let's try to do some preventative things. Right. Yeah, it, it was that set me on the, you know, the journey that I'm on now. I ended up going to see a naturopathic doctor. I changed my diet. I had already actually begun to try to take things into my own control after the surgery. I had begun doing some some things after I met a chiropractor who was speaking about natural health, but I changed my diet. I ended up eliminating dairy, juicing, eating all organic, reducing the environmental toxins. I just became intrigued about like how all these things could affect me. And is osteoporosis, is that reversible at all or? Well, the, the doctor that I went to told me that if I stopped prednisone before I was 40, she thought it, it could be reversed. And I stopped prednisone when I was 32. Mm -hmm. So I actually haven't had another bone density scan because I'm taking calcium, I'm taking vitamin D, I'm doing weight bearing exercises. I'm not interested in taking any medicine for osteoporosis, but I, I should get a, a scan at some point. I can't believe that the doctor never told you to do these activities that could prevent it. Were you still working as a lawyer throughout all of this as well? Did it affect your ability to work? I took time off for the surgery and I was probably off for about eight weeks. And then I went back to work. Once I was diagnosed with osteoporosis, then I started really working on my game plan to leave because I knew that working those hours, that was really affecting my esthenia. I wouldn't, you know, help with healing at all. I still worked a lot. I think still stayed for another year and a half, I think, but I had met my now husband. Yeah, I, I continued to work and continued to implement my healthy living, my new habits. And about December of 2010, I have not had any symptoms. Wow. I haven't been on medication. I stopped the medication shortly after. I found out I had osteoporosis with the help of my naturopathic doctor. So the naturopathic doctor really helped you implement a lot of measures that actually have treated the myasthenia then. Absolutely. One question that people always ask me is, do I think that maybe it's the surgery? Maybe it's not my lifestyle that's made me heal. Huh. But the thing is, if I don't maintain my healthy lifestyle, I'll get blurred vision. For example, if I eat dairy five years ago, my cousin got married in 
St. Martin. We were up late partying and they ordered pizza and I decided to just have some pizza. Got blurred vision from the cheese. You know, it's interesting because my sister is a physician. She's an internist. A few weeks ago, she took her boards for lifestyle medicine. Have you heard about lifestyle medicine? I have. I've heard, I've definitely heard the term and I've heard other physicians actually talking about it. Yeah. So she just found out yesterday she passed her board exams. For oh, that. So awesome. yeah. So I bet she would love to talk to you. Yeah, You're basically a walking success story for lifestyle medicine, really, because you are using all these alternative treatments instead of the traditional treatments. And it's been more successful. Traditional medicine definitely has its place, but it doesn't help the body to heal. It just suppresses the symptoms. It just helps you manage the symptoms. Me taking prednisone is not going to get to the root cause of why I have myasthenia. It's not like sustainable. I just can't keep taking prednisone. I mean, that drug is like so... Oh, it's toxic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you had to start at such a young age to think about doing that the rest of your life. is Yeah. So you mentioned that you found that community is key. So how did you create community to support you through all these things? So that's actually interesting. I didn't have too much community at the beginning of my journey. I reached out to friends and, you know, there were definitely a number of friends who were supportive, but then unfortunately I'd also had friends who couldn't handle the fact that I needed help, you know, driving to the supermarket Mm -hmm. and, and things like that, but definitely was able to lean on my true friends who would drive me down to New Jersey because I couldn't drive. But I think community is key. My mom was also trying to find other people who had myasthenia and she reached out to the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America and I was able to connect with some people there. More, And I actually even made a few connections just on social media. Like I actually have a friend who I met. She was tweeting about myasthenia. She was diagnosed when she was 22 and I was diagnosed mm-hmm. at 25. So we were able to support each other. I think it's key. And now it's a little bit easier because there's Facebook and they have all these Facebook groups. But I think that that's key, especially when you're going through a chronic illness or an autoimmune disease, because you really need people who understand what you're going through. I've always been a huge advocate of peer support ever since the NICU, because we, yeah, yeah, we really found great comfort in meeting other families that had been through that experience. People who are experiencing what you're experiencing can provide a level of comfort and support that no one else can. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So tell us about your family. My husband, Spencer, and I, we have three-year-old twin girls, Jasa and Jua, and I'm so thankful that they're being quiet right now. (laughs) (laughs) They're just such such a joy. It took us a while to have kids, and you know, we're just blessed that we have two healthy girls, and they're really at this inquisitive stage where what's that? What's that for? What does this spell? And it's great to just see their development. That's so fun that they have each other too. So you were kind of an older mom, kind of like me. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely challenges with that too. I remember we were trying to put the girls into their car seats and my husband was sitting on the chair. He put one of them, strapped them in, you know, this is when they were infants. And he said, oh, you know, put the other one in. And I said, hey, can you let me sit on the chair? And he said, man, if we were in our 20s, we would both just squat and do it. (laughs) 
know. Like, let me sit on the chair. I know. I love the idea that your daughters are going to have a black vice president to look up to. It's awesome. Unfortunately, we weren't able to record this, but when the day when they won and they made the speeches and when Kamala was speaking, we were clapping and they were clapping too. And my mother-in-law was trying to record a video, but that would have just been something great to show them. Oh gosh, would that have been amazing? But they were just clapping because we were clapping, but we were like, yeah. yeah. You should get like a newspaper with a headline, you know, take a picture of them holding it up or something like that. Right. No, That might be fun to look back on later. Right. And so what was it like being pregnant? You were feeling healthy through your pregnancy with myasthenia or? So it's been about 10 years since I've had symptoms or have been on medication. So at that point, it had been about seven years. And I even went to a doctor before I got pregnant and he said he didn't think that I would have problems. He said, you know, maybe pushing, but I I had a C-section anyway, but I felt great. Thank God everything was fine. That is great Uh, because I know twin pregnancies can really do a number on your body. I have abdominal separation, diastasis recti, where the the abdominal muscles, they separate when you're pregnant to, you know, make space for the uterus to expand. But then some women, twin pregnancies, and then also women who have C-sections, sometimes it doesn't go back together. So I'm like working hard on certain exercises to try to to close that gap. So tell us about Clean Body Living. You've started this company to help others overcome health issues like you did. Is that the purpose? Absolutely. So after I started noticing changes and improvement with everything I was doing, I became really intrigued about nutrition and just healthy lifestyle. So I ended up doing a certification course at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and became a certified holistic health coach. And yeah, it's really my mission to help women and men, but most of my clients are women, to shift their mindset and realize that they own the power and the healing journey. That's like my line. Because I feel like, especially when you're going through a chronic illness, you don't think that there's anything you can do. Your doctors tell you, take your medication, come back to me in three months. So I want people to know that there are so many things that you can do that won't even interact with your medications that can help you to get better, better manage your illness, even if you're not 100% better, but just to live better with the illness. So it's, yeah, it's my mission to help people to do that. And Clean Body Living has five principles. The first one is awareness because that's the first step. That's what I was just talking about, your mindset and really becoming aware that you can do certain things to help yourself. And then there's body movement, which is body movement exercise. But I'm not talking about running a marathon. I'm talking about moving your body in a way that's comfortable for you, that will keep you motivated to keep doing it. And then there's clean eating, eating real food. So no boxes and bags and eating organic if you can, because unfortunately our food supply has so much junk in it. Those toxins are actually impacting our health as well. And then the fourth principle of clean body living is stress reduction and self-care. And that's where sleeping comes in. That's where trying to see if you can stop working 80 to 100 hour weeks comes in. meditation, just really taking care of yourself. And then the fifth principle is reducing the environmental toxins in your life because there's so many of them. It's not just BPA, there are chemicals in our water, our 
water filters don't even filter out everything that's in our water. Like if we have a regular filter, we have chemicals in our body products and our cleaning products, but it's becoming more aware of what we're putting on in and around our bodies. So that's a little summary of clean body living. My husband is Sutter dairy-free and gluten-free. So I used to be aware of that. And the other day, my youngest son loves pizza. So we got him a pizza from Costco and my Mm -hmm. husband was tempted and he had two slices of pizza and I really paid the price that night because he has horrible stomach problems when he does it. So it's like (laughs) he has to keep learning the lesson over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, he had stomach problems for for years through his growing up. But it was really finally when he gave up gluten and that he had to add dairy to it, that it really made a difference. So I'm a believer in that. Totally. No, we're dairy and gluten free in our house as well. Well, generally speaking, I'm gluten free and I try to make the girl eat as you know little gluten as possible but they do have some gluten every now and then but unfortunately i have a lot of allergies as well or food sensitivities actually yeah the other day we had friends who gave us chocolate covered fruit and i ate a couple of them and then yeah i could see the effects i get these oh really oh yeah i was like okay that's something that i didn't totally vet i'm allergic to or sensitive to corn so oh. probably had corn starch or some <sighs> corn syrup in it that's probably what it was that's a fascinating life that you've had so you have twin three-year-olds, you have a day job as a lawyer, and then you Mm -hmm. started this business. How do you do it all? Like that's a lot with small daughters at home. Yeah, no, I'm I'm trying. My main project right now is actually my book. I'm writing a book about- (laughs) My gosh. No, yeah. So so I try to to wake up early. It doesn't always happen because yeah, my job is demanding as well. And sometimes, you know, I I work more than eight hour days. Mm -hmm. So sometimes more than 10 hour days. So I'm just trying- Trying to carve out time in the mornings and then, you know, just really be present with whatever I'm doing. Just trying to be organized. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. It it is challenging. But one of my goals in life, I really wanted to be a mother and I love my daughters, but I also want to really get this message out that people can take control of their health. So now that they're a little bit older, my business was sort of on the back burner when I was pregnant and they were younger, but I'm trying to get that out there a little bit more now. And as they get older, I'm sure it'll get get easier and easier. What would you like to be doing in 10 years? 10 years. I would love to be traveling internationally, just speaking about my business and my journey and and helping people around the world. That's my ultimate goal. I do enjoy what I'm doing now in terms of the law. It's definitely more satisfying than doing mergers and acquisitions, but I bet. Yeah. But that that's sort of my ultimate goal. It's not a short-term thing. Wow, that's really impressive. So what would you describe as one of your superpowers? I think one of my superpowers, I would say, is just being tenacious and resilient. I guess we touched on, you know, leaving Liberia. I was also trying to get pregnant for a while. There was the challenge with myasthenia. And then also when I moved down here, I quit my job. And even though I went to Ivy League schools, it was challenging to get a job, but I kept at it. So I think just being tenacious, just being focused and powering forward is, you know, one of my superpowers now. 
not letting things really bog me down. Sounds like you shifted your area of law as well. So that's actually an accomplishment as well. You know, once you start working in a particular area, you kind of get boxed in a lot of times. It's hard to find jobs that are different. Right. That I think that was also one of the challenges because I didn't want to go back to a law firm. I'm thankful I've been able to pivot and do something else yeah. that I enjoy. That's great. So what have you read or watched recently that has inspired you in your spare time when you're not working? Various <laughs> different things. What, you, when uh, is that, Marie? No, I know. I don't know. I'm reading, well, I'm listening to this book called The 5 a.m. Club oh. by Robin Sharma. That's the secret to your success. You get up at 5 a.m., right? No, Marie, <laughs> I'm not in the club yet. I'm not in the club yet. I'm reading <laughs> reading the book. <laughs> uh-huh. No, I am not a morning person at all. My husband is, but I, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like fun to me. <laughs> no, no, my husband is saying, I told him I was listening to the 5am club. He was like, you're going to join that? Really? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, the reason I really like the book is about personal development and productivity and really focusing on your mindset, your heart set, your health set, and your soul set. So he talks about when you wake up at five, that you should focus on on those four areas. You should work out. You should do gratitude journaling. You should think about your week. You should meditate. So those are all things like I love meditating and I pray as well. So these are all things I want to do in the morning and then work on my book. (laughs) Is 5 a.m. a requirement to be in the club? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. I I think I'm probably going to be in the 6 a.m. club. Yeah, right. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's more attainable for me. I was actually really lucky because I worked in the corporate world for most of my career, like for 29 years. And my husband was a stay-at-home dad. So that was a huge gift because, I mean, he was a huge help, like you know, getting the kids off to school and all that. He did all of that. So I feel really privileged that I had that when I was in the corporate job. You have a lot on your plate. Yeah. I'm just trying to, trying to balance. Yeah. And, um, as some people say, find harmony. It's really difficult to actually balance everything. That's what Lisa Nichols, who's a motivational speaker, talks about harmony because Mm -hmm. you can't spend equal time on all these things. My final question is, I always ask my guests, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I would say my mom, because my mom did everything that she could like for her kids and her family. Once we left Liberia, just imagine you're in your 40s, you lose everything, like all your money, all your, you know, worldly possessions, except a suitcase. And then you have to pick up and provide for your family. You have two kids. And my dad was in school. So he wasn't making money at the time. And my mom was able to hustle, get a job at the UN. I did get a full scholarship to Cornell. But when I first got accepted, they didn't give me any money at all. I remember my dad was home and I got into Cornell and I got into Duke, which is where I really wanted to go and no money. And he looked kind of, he was excited, but he looked kind of, man, I did, did they give you money? Because uh-huh. if they didn't, unfortunately you can't go. And my mom wrote letters to them telling them what happened during the war. Oh. And, and then I got a scholarship Cornell. And then she helped my dad get a job because when he graduated, he went to Harvard too. 
he graduated from Harvard, but because he was an international student and he was older, it was hard for him to find a job. But my uh-huh. mom hustled within the UN and was always handing out his resume to get him a job. And then he ended up getting a job at the UN as well overseas. But she was really determined to do that. And Thankfully, uh, she's still around. She's still hustling. We, you know, my my brother and I are just so thankful for her example and her grit and determination to give us the childhood that we had. She sounds amazing. What's her name? Vera. Oh, shout out to Vera. I'm sure she'll be listening. So does she live near you? (laughs) Yeah, actually, she was around yesterday. Uh, She lives about 30 minutes Uh, from here. And we were totally socially distancing from her and my my in-laws. But she's been around, you know, more recently to help out. She's always helping all totally masked up windows open, you know. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But thankfully, we're able to see her. But Mm -hmm. because of COVID, I I haven't really been able to hang out with her. Yeah. I know. That's something I I want to do, but it's so I hard. Yeah, my parents just live like five minutes away, and I don't get to see them. You know, we sit outside, but the weather's so awful right now. It's going to be a hard winter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I told my mom too that she needs to stop like coming around. I mean, <laughs> I, I want to see her, but you know, I'm like this COVID is picking yeah, up. Yeah, it's getting worse. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's probably a good idea to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all have to be more careful, at least for over the next couple of months. Right. Well, it's just been a wonderful time getting to know you. Thank you for your time. Same here. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, you are definitely a success story and integrative health. Thank you. Well, and I look forward to reading your book. So good luck with that. Thanks. Let me get it done. I know. I've learned a lot about Liberia. It's fascinating. I've been doing some work with this organization called the Immigrant Story here in Oregon that documents stories of immigrants. And I've been learning about all sorts of countries. I feel really uneducated in terms Mm -hmm. of world geography. My husband is British. And so he knew, of course, he knew all about Liberia, of course. My mom actually went to boarding school there. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was an ambassador. So my mom grew up all over the world. Born in Wallasey, England. And then she grew up in Ghana, Haiti, went to college in Paris. My parents got married in Italy. So she speaks Italian, French, and English. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She's very accomplished. My gosh. You have a really cosmopolitan background. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get to know you and I hope we can talk again. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so inspired by Ami Sieta's grit and resilience. And even though my friends tease me about how much I get done in a short time, I think she has me beat. Now, if only I could become a morning person and get up at 5 a.m. Next week, I start my Writers on Resilience series, and I'm incredibly excited, especially because these writers have all appeared on my best books list each year, two of them in 2020. My first writer will be Kathy Marie Buchanan, whose book, Daughter of Black Lake, which is set in Iron Age Britain, topped my best fiction books of 2020 list. I also loved her novel, When the Fall Stood Still, set in Niagara Falls. As an avid reader, it's such a thrill to be able to talk to the creators of these wonderful stories. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Don't forget, you can find photos of Ami Sieta with Eleanor Johnson Sirleaf and her adorable daughters on my website, www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the podcast tab. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Have a great day.